My name is Jorge M. Sanchez and welcome to the JMS Podcast. Today's guest is filmmaker David Schindel. David Schindel has been a filmmaker for a while and I saw his documentary in Cinequest back in March. It was a great documentary called The Comedy Club and I really loved it. I really did. It, it was for me probably one of the best films I've seen this year at Cinequest and not just from a filmmaking standpoint did I respect it but also from a comedy standpoint me being a stand-up comedian and how he portrayed uh, Tom Sawyer's uh, story of trying to keep uh, the the club Cobbs in San Francisco uh, up and alive and how its rich history really uh, not only was part of the San Francisco scene but possibly even in the industry scene and in, in, in stand-up comedy so I, I said I had to eventually have this guy on my podcast and I was very nervous how to approach it, right? Because I get nervous asking, you know, people to be on this podcast. And eventually, I made contact through Facebook, and he more than happily responded. And uh, before I knew it, I was at Fort Mason Community Gardens tasting his raspberries in his garden. That was interesting. That was really awesome. Probably one of the best uh, greetings I had from a podcast guest. And uh, we had a beautiful view of the city and of the ocean. And I just thought, man, this... This is like very peaceful over here. And we sat down and we talked it out. We talked out about his latest documentary and about previous works he worked on. And I'm very excited to show you guys this interview. It is uh, the second interview that is has been done, uh, you know, not in the studio here. I used my, uh, again, my Blue Yeti microphone. I'm still trying to, you know, work out the kinks on the mic. But for the most part, I think the audio is pretty good. Uh, I I think uh, I think I still have some a little tuning up to do with the with the mobile microphone. So uh, if any of you guys know how to properly use a Blue Yeti microphone, I'd love to hear some feedback and how I could improve that. You can contact me at jmspodcast at gmail.com. If you're listening for the first time, feel free to subscribe and feel free to follow me at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. That is right. You can follow JMS podcast and all through those venues and uh, keep up with the latest content I mean uh, just this week I just released another uh, food article I had a great talk with the owner and uh, general manager of original gravity which is in downtown San Jose and I we talked about beer we talked about craft beer and we talked about sausages they have a interesting blend of exotic sausages so you can catch that article at jmspodcast.com or you can just Check it out on Facebook. And yeah. So without much further ado, let's continue on with my talk with David Schindel. Alright, uh, David Schindel, right? Is yes. that how you pronounce it? Schindel? Schindel. Schindel. Alright. Schindel. Um... I'm, I'm recording now, just letting okay. you know. Uh, thank you. We're on the record. We're on the record. Thank you again for, for being patient with me. It was a long drive over here. Yeah. Uh, but we're here. Welcome and to the Fort Mason Community Garden in lovely San Francisco, California. Yeah, I've never been here before, and your raspberries taste great. Thank you. Uh, they, they do. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> but, uh, but it's interesting that you mentioned this was the first community garden in, in the United States. Yeah, yeah, actually, we've been to members here for, uh, oh, just about 20 years, and 
Um, just a great place to you know go after a day of work and and like I said, living on you know the top floor of an apartment building in San Francisco, even though the view is great, you know um, I like to I like to get my hands dirty and. And I'm from Minnesota originally, and you know we're all farm boys at heart out there. So well, I, I love to I love to grow stuff, you know, grow food. And what vegetables. part of Minnesota? The Twin Cities, yeah, Twin little City. little uh, suburb just west of the of Minneapolis called Eden Prairie, uh-huh. which uh, was actually where you know Prince had his first studio, and then um, Chanhassen, which is where Paisley Park is, is just a, like a hop, skip, and a jump from where I grew up. So. Yeah, I have family over there. I visited Minnesota. Oh, great! Uh, it's, it's interesting weather. Yeah, um, uh, flat. Yeah, but, but a lot of lakes. Yeah, a lot of lakes. Like it's true. It's yeah. true, and and it's it's hard to believe, but I mean, one of the largest larger groups, um, um, ethnic groups in Minnesota is is Mexicans, because a lot of people don't realize that the the migrant labor workers, you know, would go there every year to help pick the crops, just like California. So um, I think a lot of people get the idea that Minnesota is kind of this really white place, but actually it's, it's very racially diverse. What kind of crops do they have over there? Uh, corn, wheat, uh, tomatoes, um, soybeans, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of corn, a lot of corn. A lot of corn. Like see, like it's an ocean of corn sometimes, you get outside of the cities and it's just nothing but corn, like for miles it's all you can see. Mm. So that's the, that's the environment I kind of grew up in out there. And is that where you started studying film? Um, yeah, I, could, I guess you could say I studied it and I practiced it too. I made my first film when I was 12 years old. Uh, my dad was a painter and a designer and uh, owned his own wild, uh, advertising company. His name was Alfred Schendel. And uh, he tried to teach me to paint and I think he got so frustrated that I just didn't have that talent to do that. That one day he just handed me a camera and he said, maybe this will work out better for you. <laughs> what kind of camera was it? Was it a it Super was 8? A Super 8, yeah. Oh, man. Super 8 camera. Back uh, in those film days. Yes, and, and I actually would take it and uh, make, I made uh, like like gangster movies and, and uh, um, cowboy movies with uh, with my friends. And we'd all dress up and I would write and direct it. This was, I was 12 years old. And, um, and then I would edit it and I didn't have an editing machine, so I would just take the Super 8 film and stop I had a projector and I would stop it where I wanted to cut and I'd take the film and I would cut it and then I would literally tape it together with scotch tape and then poke the, the sprocket holes out and run it through again and then when I finished you know early early stages of capitalism for me but I would actually charge my friends like I don't know what it was back then 25 50 cents or something like that to come and see themselves in the film <laughs> so they actually paid me oh, man. to be in my films, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and that kind of, you know, led to me um, getting more involved in the theater as well. And, um, and then I went, you know, to University of Washington. I got a degree in uh, theater directing and playwriting. Um, and I directed live theater for a few years. And then I got the film bug. I started making films. Um, Oh, so film the film bug came later. Writing and acting came first. Well, no, actually, film was film was first. I mean, yeah. I, when I was twelve years old. Yeah. Right, but 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 aspirations as a career. Yeah, yeah, I got into I, I got into theater for some reason. I didn't. Um, I don't know. I I had always been making films, but um, I guess uh, I'd been doing theater as well in high school, and I won an award for uh, a play that I did in high school, and. Did you write the play? No, it was, oh. it was acting and directing. Yeah. Oh, wow. 
it was like conference they had back in Minnesota. They had these um, conference theater championships, which was kind of cool. You know, yeah. I don't know if they have them here. Do you remember the play? Uh, yeah, it was called The Diary of Adam and Eve. Huh. What's it, it about? Written by Mark Twain, actually. Um, it's it's a comedy about Mark, how Adam and Eve, um, their relationship, and also how they name the animals, and they have these arguments about what they should call certain animals. And <laughs> it's very funny. It's a very funny play. And, you know, like, like sports, you know, you have conference championships and playoffs and stuff like that. We had those in theater as well. So um, I guess film was kind of, um, I don't know. I don't know exactly why I chose theater over film. I think theater was just a little more accessible for me, you know, back then. And, and I'm glad I did it because, you know, I learned to work with actors and I learned a little bit more about narrative story structure. And I think play, playwriting and, and um Theater directing are a little bit more kind of uh, process oriented, you know, because you rehearse actors for like four or six weeks rather yeah. than just they get on the set and you shoot them like in a film. Yeah. So I just got I got a better idea of process, I guess. Um, yeah, and then I ended up, you know, I ended up making my first film probably, I don't know how much biographical stuff you want, but um, I made my first feature length film called The Can. Um, which took me four years to make, and that was uh, shot entirely on Super 8. And I made that when I was in my 20s. Do you um, remember what, what age in your 20s? Or uh, yeah, I think I, was probably, I started it when I was probably 25, yeah. right after I graduated from college. Yeah. And then I... Um, I'm asking because a, a lot of directors have their first feature in the 30s. So it's always interesting here uh, when, you, when someone starts in their 20s. Cause, yeah. Because yeah. a huge learning curve if you start early. It is, right. but I mean, I had, I, I mean, I shot part of it on the camera that I had when I was 12 years old. So, I mean, I just, I had this idea, I, I mean, you know, again, there's a lot of biographical details here, but I was sitting in a cafe in Paris. I lived in uh, Paris for a year and I saw this Coca-Cola can. It was a windy day and this Coca-Cola can just kind of came rolling down the street and I was watching it, drinking my, ca my coffee and, and then it kind of like literally turned a corner and then went down another street and disappeared. And I felt like the like Coca-Cola was going somewhere, like it had a mission, you know? Yeah. And so I just started off the cuff, started writing this story about a Coca-Cola can, which ended up turning into my first feature film called The Can, which is about the last can of Coca-Cola in the world. Yeah. It's the last one. and It's somebody, rolling around? And so, yeah, it's rolling around. <laughs> People are using it for different weird things. And uh, um, Did you... Did you film it in France or here in the States? I filmed it here in the States. Okay. In, in uh, Seattle, outside of Seattle in Minnesota and in Massachusetts. So you, you've been traveling quite a bit in, in, your, in yeah, your 20s. Think, What's that about? Um, you know, uh, looking for answers maybe. I don't know. Maybe, maybe just yeah. curious about the world. Um, um, I had girlfriends in different places too. I think maybe that pulled, pulled me in certain directions. Yeah. But... Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, that, that film was that, that film did very well for me. It uh, was an underground sensation, I guess is what they call it. It showed at media arts centers all over the U.S. Almost got into Sundance, although I couldn't um, show it because Coca-Cola would not release the trade trademark to me. Oh, man. Um, and it, it's in every shot in the film, literally. <laughs> right. So this is like, you know, when you start to beware, when you start your first feature in your 20s. Right. And you don't know anything about trademark laws. Be careful what you put in your films, because quite literally, I had to, like, I couldn't distribute this film because of it. 
Yeah. And um, you couldn't make money off it. No, I did. I did make money off of it. You know, yeah. I mean, I could say that now, and because back then, I mean, I, I couldn't charge money for people to see it. But what would happen would be media arts centers or cinemas would um, pay me like a fee, right, to come and talk. So technically uh, speaking, I was getting paid to be talk, there to, to be there to talk <laughs> about the film. Yeah. But people were being let in for free. Right. So they weren't paying to see the film. Uh, that's that's awesome. So yeah, and that's something I yeah. should consider now. Yeah, think yeah, about I mean, it. It's it's you know I, I think it could have done a lot better. I mean, obviously if it had played at Sundance, um, and the and the programmer of, of feature films back then, whose name was Alberto Garcia, really wanted to show it at Sundance, and we just there's no way we could. We could pull it off, you know. And you shot this yourself, edited it yourself, or did you have a crew behind you? Uh, no, I had a crew. I had a crew for four years, or did no, not for the whole time. It's it's very the the film is very episodic. Um, you know, every scene is different actors in different locations, because the the can is moving basically, literally across the United States. Mm. Have you like since those four years? Did you ever look back and you're like, I remember that. Oh yeah, and then you see yourself develop by the end of the film. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, two of my ex-girlfriends are in this film. I can't not think about oh, man. my my past. That must have been hard, right? Yeah, it's, it's, having to see it on the big screen. Yeah, oh man, that's, that's the way it works. But but I'm sure this 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 film opened a lot of doors for you. Yes, I mean it, got, it did. It got around. It did. Yeah, it was. Um, I think it really helped. It certainly helped me within the industry to. Um, Produced my next film, which was I mean I did a lot of I did a lot of short films and then I and then because I had made this film also I, I ended up working um, working for and with a lot of Hollywood people like I was uh, hired to be Michael Bay's assistant for a year while he was working on The Rock. How was that? That Experience. was a, that was a, a big learning curve also you know because that was a big budget. Um, big budget Hollywood feature with a lot of special effects. And I was kind of working side by side with Jerry Bruckheimer mm. um, also on the film. Intense guy, huh? Yeah, and I was really, you know, yeah, very cool guy though too. And, um, and, and so, so specifically good at what he does. And that was back in the Simpson Bruckheimer days too when he had Don Simpson as his partner, who was another film genius and just great deal maker. But, I mean, you know, the idea that I was responsible for the script and, I mean, I had to make sure that, that the scripts were updated and sometimes the writer would get done with, the, with pages at, like, 3 a.m. and I would have to go to his hotel room, get those pages, copy them, and go to each of the stars, be it Connery, Sean Connery, or Ed Harris or Nick Cage, and make sure that those pages got inserted into their script for the next day. Yeah. So there was a huge amount of responsibility and also, like, this idea that this I was part of this machine. And... If, if my gear happened to strip in, inside that machine, the whole thing would come to a stop. So I was really, you know, very, um, I needed to be very responsible for what I was doing. And, you know, I, I've, never, I've never directed a company that's that big. Uh, I could. I mean, I know now, now what it takes to do that, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, that, so the can kind of led me to more industry jobs. And then, of course... Um, Yank Tanks came around in um, 2000. I got the opportunity through my brother, Stephen Schendel, to go to Cuba and make a film about the classic American cars down there called Yank Tanks. And uh, we, you know, went to these backyard machine shops and 
even guys that are making you know brakes for these old cars because they can't get parts in Cuba right because of the embargo right so they have to literally make the parts including the chrome parts yeah. to, to keep these cars running and that became you know a big sensation that was on Sundance Channel it was on PBS it's sh- it screened worldwide it won a bunch of awards it's fascinating uh, because in Cuba rich cinema history there. Yeah. I think a lot, like uh, a lot of my favorite films are Cuban. And yeah, there's some they, great ones. And they themselves, they, they they take their film very seriously. Their their industry, the, the little they have. Yeah, yeah. But but how was that experience coming in from the American uh, studio system or the American film system, and, and adapting to the Cuban style of doing things? Well, you know, we were. Um, I wasn't. I mean, I had a couple of guys I, I worked with as far as scouts and an assistant. Um, when I was shooting in Cuba, I didn't really, I don't think it was that, it was really a small unit we were down there. We didn't want to attract any attention. So we really wanted to, to look like tourists, not a film crew. Right. So we were really low pro. And, uh, um, but I mean, it was, you know, I think we had an easier time of it because our co-producer Javier Bahana um, uh, was, has been doing news reporting in Havana and Cuba for a long, long time. So he was very well trusted by the, the Castro government. Uh, in fact, he was one of the guys that brought Muhammad Ali to meet uh, Fidel Castro. Fascinating. Wow. Back in, oh man, it was like 20, 25, 30 years ago, I think. Um, so, I mean, but my, my filming experiences there were, were great. I mean, except for the last time when it, you know, we were going we to film the street racing because they do these street racing with these old cars. No kidding, like yeah. drag racing? Yeah. Oh, wow. They go out to these like old, <laughs> you know, old uh, empty roads by the airport. Um, and they bet on these cars, like, is the Chevy going to win or is the Ford going to win? And, right. um, and, you know, they tell me, yeah, this, this Buick actually beats all the Porsches. Whenever we race the Porsches, this Buick beats it. We don't know why. It's just such a fast car. And I was told that those Buicks were pretty powerful cars back in the day. And, you know, we were going to film that and it, it just rained on every single day that we were in Havana that time. Yeah. And I was down there four times. This was the fourth time. To film it, and man, it was just so frustrating. We, that would have been a great, another great sequence in the documentary that didn't make it in. But it was so funny because the the day before, I one of my Cuban friends said, "Well, you should go to see an Orisha, you know, and, and have them pray for the rain to stop." You know, Orisha is a Santeria religion, kind of, a, or a little bit of voodoo involved there, like chickens and blood and stuff. And I thought, okay, well, whatever. And what do I have to do? You just pay them, and they'll do the check-in and. You know, and then I said, well, I don't have to get any tattoos or anything, right? And they're like, no, nah, nah, nah. they do it all for themselves. You just go in and they, they'll pray over you and then, and then you can leave and they'll do the rest. So I did that. I paid the Santeria to make the rain stop. And literally the next day, we were going to film our last B-roll shots of these old cars cruising down the Malacan in Havana. You know, we needed sun. You can't take, well, number one, you can't, you can't take a convertible Cadillac out in the rain and make it look good. But number two, you can't take a good digital camera on the rain either. It'll fry it, you know. And we're and we're hanging off cars and doing car to car shooting and and literally we got we were out there and I was like, oh, it's raining again. And suddenly the clouds parted, like miraculously, like they literally like in a biblical scene parted on the, on the Malacan. It was the only place that was sunny on the entire island, and it lasted that way for two hours. And we were able to get the, the bare minimum shots we needed. And then, boom, the clouds closed again. Wow, best 50 bucks you could, you could <laughs> exactly. spend, huh? Exactly. So, you know, 
when in, when in, <laughs> when in Cuba, you know, right. make sure you know Santeria. Just make sure you have the phone number of a Santeria when you're down there. But yeah, that film that film was great. And Car Lovers, it, it, it blew up. We thought we were making a niche film. And it turned out that there's a lot more people who are interested in Cuba than we thought. Um, and certainly, I think it's because it's kind of mysterious and it's been off limits for Americans for a long time. Helped that. But um, like I told you previously, we're, we are now relaunching that. And uh, you can watch it on Vimeo On Demand now, vimeo.com. Just go to vimeo.com and, and punch in Yank Tanks. And, you know, you just pay a small, uh, put a little, a dollar in the jar or whatever, and you can watch the film. And uh, that's good. We can, we can have that access now to let people see it again. Was that your first documentary? That was my first feature documentary. Feature documentary. Yeah. How, how is that transition to documentary filmmaking? From narrative? Yes. Um, you know, I try to... I, I mean, I think people that are strict documentarians uh, probably would argue with me on this, but I think I come at it from a stronger angle because I treat it like a narrative film. I treat it like it's got a storyline, you know, and it's got characters within that storyline. Um, and I like, I like the idea of bringing the people out in the story and very much like get deep into their characters and make you feel like you're hanging out with them rather than just like, like the older kind of Ken Burns style PBS documentary. It's very detached. Yeah, it's detached. It's sound bites. It's very informational. I'd like to think my style is a little more personal. I like to put people into the into the documentary as as, as like the storytellers. Mm-hmm. So maybe it goes back to a little bit more of a narrative filmmaking style, you know, and, and um, has a beginning, middle, and end, an arc that goes through it. Um, and I think in the new film, The Comedy Club, you definitely can you, you can feel that arc. Yeah, The Comedy Club. I was there in Cinequest, San Jose. I was working because oh. I was interning for Cinequest. I, I was a uh, I helped them with the screenplay competition because you know, I'm a screenwriter, oh, nice. and I I also do stand up. So when I saw that on the program, I was like, I gotta go take my gal and go see that documentary. Yeah, yeah. What'd you think? And and we were there, and I absolutely loved it. Oh, and and I, I I even like I was very nervous because I want to that that Q and A at the end when Tom Sawyer himself was on stage. Turns out you guys you sat next to me this no. whole time. So I'm really happy that I loved it because if I didn't loved it, you probably would have heard me, you know, doing like, oh, oh come on, I was that shaking that whole yeah. row of seats. I was so nervous. <laughs> but, but but you know, they're like, oh, you know, the director's coming up, and sure enough, like uh, three seats down, you get up and you walk over. I was like, oh my god, yeah. good thing I love this film. I, the last thing I wanted yeah. was to be like, oh come on, in front of the the director next to me. Yeah, that's but, funny because the and Tom Sawyer was behind you. That's what Mick LaSalle said, the critic from the uh, the Chronicle. Um, who loves the film too and gave it a great review. Um, he said, because we did a private screening, um, you know, for critics or whatever, and he said it's really difficult when you know the filmmakers in the audience with you. Yeah. It's almost like it's hard to concentrate on the film because you're constantly thinking, oh my God, what if I hate this film? I have to look at this guy afterwards and, and tell him yeah. honestly what I think. It's going to be, you know, whatever. But he ended up loving it, so it's fine. Yeah, uh, and it was the world premiere you mentioned at Cinequest. That was the uh, first public screening. Yeah. Public screening, and uh, it's it's interesting because from a me you know from San Jose we have a very small stand up scene, yeah. but yeah there are certain principles that that I come to understood when I was you know watching the Tom Sawyer uh, story mm-hmm. unfold, uh, and I also run a, a small uh, open mic. Oh, cool. Was that the struggle is real when it comes trying to not just create but maintain 
a space to do comedy, and oh, yeah. and and it's 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 a variety of factors. You know, it's it's economical. Mm-hmm. It is just you know you know personal. You know, emotional. You get emotionally attached to things, and yeah. sometimes things don't work out the the way you expected, and you get very down. And at the same time, a lot of hope as well. You know, you, you know, he had a lot of comedians helping him out, and it's like that yeah. itself created a community. And for me, it's like wow, like I could I could see those principles happening here in San Jose on a smaller scale. It's very beautiful to see it, you know, being being displayed on the big screen to a crowd that have no idea, don't have like or don't know that world necessarily. Yeah, you know. And I was very disappointed in the sense that I was the only San Jose comic watching that film on that night. I was like, I wish a lot more local comedians would have came out. And yeah, saw film. that was you know that was a tough night, man. That was like a hurricane outside. I don't know if you remember. It was raining hard. Yes, it I was rain. That. It was like raining. It wasn't just raining. It was like it was like horizontal rain. I mean, it was just brutal. And you know that the cinema, the cinema for the premiere. I mean, they sold all the tickets. It was a sellout. But literally, they told me 15% of the people never came to pick up the tickets because they just stayed home. I mean, they have newscasters on the TV locally, you know, um, saying, hey, don't go out tonight if you don't have to. <laughs> so that kind of that put a damper on things, you know, and uh, literally a damper. But um, it was a great night anyway. I mean, we had a great the place is almost full and I really enjoyed it. And I think that, you know, there's something symbolic about the fact that, that there was this hurricane going on outside and we're in here you know watching this film about this guy who's got through a hurricane himself yeah basically like a life life hurricane how, how did that story come about how did it grab your attention uh the club the club or tom sawyer himself both well i'll tell you it was an interesting kind of serendipity i guess like all documentaries that kind of happen and you find the subject and you're like, wow, you're surprised nobody's ever done anything on that subject, which kind of blows your mind. But um, I was sitting at a cafe literally around the corner from the New Cobbs on Columbus Street with a friend of mine, uh, Howard Meehan, who's a stand- local stand-up comic here. And we're having coffee and he's like, hey, did you know that Cobbs moved? And I'm like, oh, moved from Fisherman's, Wh- Fisherman's Wharf? Where'd it go? Oh, it's right around the corner. Let's go see if... Uh, if anybody's there, you know? And that was the day we literally walked in and Tom Sawyer, Michael Pagan, and Carolyn Sawyer were there and they were, I think, choosing glassware or something by dropping the glasses on the ground to see if they would break. Because they, <laughs> they knew what kind of, da- what kind of you know, what, what kind of uh, weight staff they had or something, I guess. But um, And I just thought that was so funny. And then I met Tom Sawyer and I'm like, is that really his name? It's an interesting name. And of course, you know, I ended up meeting his parents and proving that they didn't indeed, they did name him Thomas Sawyer. And, uh, and the fact that he ended up being a comedy glove owner, you know, when Tom Sawyer, I mean, you know, Mark Twain was one of the first, if not the first stand-up comedian, I think. Mm -hmm. He used to say, I mean, people would pay a dollar and go into, to watch him on stage for like 45 minutes telling what he called witticisms, which are basically jokes, you know. Um, so, I mean, it's just like, I, I, all these things started to fall, fall together. And then as I was researching him and making some calls when I, before I decided to do the doc, uh, I was hearing all these stories about the people that he had launched. I mean, literally built the ramp to the highway for these people. Um, Ellen DeGeneres, Bill Maher, 
Jim Carrey even is quoted as saying, "Is my career started at Cobb's? Mm-hmm. It all started at Cobb's for me." He did, he did he developed all of those characters that he did on in Living Color at Cobb's here in the cannery in San Francisco. Um, I mean, the list goes on. Kevin Pollock from San from San Jose. Right. Uh, Kevin Nealon, Dana Carvey. Um, wow, just yeah, Bob Saget. I mean, all these guys that. I mean, they all have to come from somewhere, right? I mean, you know, as a comic, you got to start with five minutes, and usually it sucks. Yeah. And then you get better, and maybe you get fifteen minutes or twenty minutes, and then yeah. maybe you work your way up to a headliner, and we got forty-five minutes worth of material. Yeah. And, and it's tough so, road. Somewhere in between, you want to quit, but the next day, you're like, oh, I got to get up there. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, the most important part in that, and I think this goes, I think this pretty much goes across the board to say, you know, in all performing arts, you have to have someone that's sitting in the back of the room. Going, that sucks, don't do that, or hold the mic closer to your mouth, or like all that. You need to critique, you know, and I think in stand-up comedy, that's really hard to find. Mm -hmm. You might get a critique from the other comics, which you can either believe or not, because they might have a different style of comedy. But if you're talking about the guy that's paying you, you know, at the end of the night, and he's telling you, don't do that joke anymore, it's not working, or work on that joke a little bit more, or you need to write more, which is what he used to say to comics all the time. He said, I saw your whole set. It was exactly the same. I'm not going to book you again until you have new jokes. And he used to piss people off when you tell them that. But the idea that these guys had to come from somewhere. And they all came from Cobbs. And they all went through Tom Sawyer's school of comedy. Yeah. I mean, you know, one could argue we're living in a, in a Tom Sawyer curated world right now as far as stand-up comedy is concerned. Because all these people that he helped become famous, you know, are, are amazing. Like, I mean, who doesn't like Dana Carvey? He's got to be. I've never. I've seen him probably five or six times live. I've never seen him. I've never seen him eat at once. I mean, he walks in. He controls the audience like a master. And you know, and he'll take the same joke and tell it in a different way, three or four times in the same set. You know, and you won't even notice it. It'll just get funnier and funnier and funnier, and he'll build on it. I mean, it's he kind of invented that. I think, in fact, was. Um, taking the same joke and, and working it over different ways throughout his set. Um, and then, of course, there's Robin Williams, who um, was pretty famous before Tom came on the scene, but Tom and him were very good friends. Robin would stop in at Cobbs and, you know, say, hey, can I get out and work out some new material? And every single time, Tom would say, of course, get up there. And, you know, and the crowds that got lucky enough to see that, which I did a couple times, I think we're the luckiest people in the world because they're sitting in a club that's like, what, the old Cobbs was literally like 200, 300 seats. Mm-hmm. And you're 10 feet from Robin Williams on stage and he's blowing the room away. And I saw him one time, he went on for two hours straight. Never stopped, never took a pee break, just kept guzzling water and telling jokes. And by the end of the night, I felt like I had like, my abs had been, had been conditioned. <laughs> I was laughing so hard for two hours. It yeah. actually hurt. You know, and I mean, the, I think that the, the hard part about Cobbs and, and the sad part of that story is that, you know, there just aren't a lot of Co- Tom Sawyer's or, or Cobbs comedy clubs out there in the world, you know, where a young comic can go and, and be nurtured and develop into something rather than, you know, have this feeling like you're on your own and nobody is out there for you. I think that that's an overwhelming feeling right now. And, and, and I think, you know, like you're saying, how hard it is to keep open a, a venue. 
definitely this film definitely sh he shows the backstage of that in the in the backside of comedy so to speak as far as trying to keep the doors open and pay for a club but I think that goes across every single live venue right now I think live entertainment is really hurting mm -hmm. people just I don't know maybe they're just playing Pokemon Go or something and they don't <laughs> they don't need to like go to movies or whatever and maybe they're watching them at home or or maybe they think that watching something on a comedy special on HBO is the same as being at a club. For those of you listening who have never been to a comedy club and seen a live comedy show, it is very different from mm -hmm. watching it on TV. Right. It's, it's an energy that you feel that gets inside you. Yeah. And, and, and you feel it. And it's a feedback between the audience and the comic. And sometimes that just gets crazy where the audience is like laughing and the comic is getting, you know is getting funnier and the laughter from the audience is making the comic like just rip it even harder and and it's just like it just it just goes up and up and up and up and up and up and it's purely euphoric i mean you're laughing you're feeling good you're around other people that are happy the comic on stage is feeling it i mean there's there's no greater feeling in the world and i imagine as you know being a comic when people are laughing at you it's like the greatest high in the world yeah. it sure is it sure is and, 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 and like you said live entertainment it's like almost a, it's almost a communal thing you know it's like we're in this you know in this room laughing together or not laughing and yeah. and you know in that case we're in the trenches going going through the set but other than that it's I think you're completely right I think we've been seeing less and less people showing up to, to not just uh, comedy shows but music shows and stuff like that and if they are they're on their phones and it's like not the yeah. same vibe that's yeah, for sure. and I've seen, you know, I mean, a great way to, like, I mean, because because you're a comic, you probably have experienced this, but, you know, comics generally would do, like, a three or four night run at a club, like uh, the Improv in San Jose. They'll come down there for, like, three or four nights. It's very interesting to go see them twice, mm -hmm. like, back-to-back -back nights, mm -hmm. and feel the difference, because sometimes there's crowds that are just like, I don't know, man. They, maybe they, they took too much medication before they came to the show. But they're literally stone cold. Yeah. And the comics could not get them out of that state, no matter how hard they try. Yeah. And then there's other nights where people are just in the mood to laugh, and they'll laugh at freaking anything. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, I think, I mean, and true of all pretty much live performances, but, I mean, stand-up comics in particular have the hardest job in the world, I think. How is it? I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, how was it convincing Tom Sawyer to be the subject of the documentary? Uh, yeah, that took some doing. Um, Tom, not so much. Tom was, uh, when he had seen Yang Tanks and, and kind of saw my filmography of what I'd done and who I'd worked for, Tom was in pretty quick. I mean, he, he could see how this was important and how the history of the club and, and his personal story was important, too. Um, and he very quickly was on board with me. His two partners, not so much. His ex-wife Carolyn and Michael Pagan were a little more hesitant and um, suspicious of my intents, you know. How so? Well, I think that they were worried because, I mean, it was an intense situation. They had screaming matches amongst themselves and mm -hmm. called each other really bad words while they were on camera, you know, and, and I would catch that stuff. And, and I think they were worried I was going to use that and make it into some kind of, you know, um, reality TV show type thing where all you're doing is looking for the worst in human behavior and that's all you're trying to do is get people screaming at each other and being assholes. Um, and that wasn't the intent of the piece at all. So it took me a little while to get their 
acceptance. And then we got we had we found an investor, Serene Papuk, um, from Silicon Valley, a brilliant man, helped invent like the Blu-ray disc and, and wrote the codec for MPEG-4 and all this stuff. I mean, really one of those Silicon Valley genius guys, mm -hmm. and was really into movies and comedy. And he was going to give us the seed money. I won't say how much, but he's going to give us the seed money to shoot the documentary. And I couldn't, I couldn't consciously have him sign a contract without having first gotten rights releases from the three main people in the documentary, because they could have turned around and said, "No, you can't use me," and that would have, you know, changed the whole dynamic. Right. So um, that's where Dan Riviera entered, my partner, and he's an entertainment lawyer. Worked in L.A. for a very long time very skillful uh, contract writer. And we were able to, you know, I had already been shooting for a month at the club with these guys, watching them build the club and down on Columbus Street, the new cops. And I think that they, they trusted me. I think Tom convinced them that this was a good thing and that I wasn't going to be just going for negative stuff, you know. And so they, they eventually did sign their, their releases and I was able to get that seed money probably two months into the into the shooting process, but I really did take a, a, a risk, a big risk there. I spent, you know, hundred hundreds of hours filming before I ever had any rights to the story at all. I mean, they easily could have shut me down and kicked me out, and I would have had nothing, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's an important lesson in documentary filmmaking. Like, uh, a circuit once told me, is like, when you make a documentary, you need to build a relationship with your subject. Yeah. And only you can, like, there's no set way to know when's the right time to ask. Yeah. Only you will figure that out when the time comes. Exactly. Yeah, that's very true. And, I mean, to a certain degree, yeah, you have to build a relationship, but that relationship isn't friendship. Mm -hmm. You can't ever let it go to that. Because then your objective point of view shifts. You know, if you're friends with somebody, you're, you're le less likely to reveal them truthfully, I think. Interesting. I think you need to keep that distance between you and the subject. And, and I think that's part of journalism, you know? It's part of um, a journalism standard that maybe is gone today, I don't know, but the idea that, you know, you are, as a documentarian, it's your responsibility to have a very objective eye. You can't take sides. You, you need to, at least this is my personal story, you can't tell people what to think. You need to just pre present the facts or show the story and let people walk out of that cinema or, uh, or walk out of their you know, living room after they see it and, and, and let them be the judge, you know? Let them, let them decide what, whose fault it was that, you know, what happened to Cobbs. Was it Tom Sawyer's? Was it the market? You know, let them decide, like in Yang Tanks, is the embargo right or wrong? I never tell anybody that the embargo is right or wrong. I just show them these wonderful Cuban people who are struggling, who are, who are our friends, not our enemies, and then you make your own judgment. So I always try to stay on that journalistic high road. You know, I never, like for example, after Yank Tanks came out, uh, my manager in LA kept sending me out on these interviews for reality TV shows. And every time I went to these things, I just walked out feeling like I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't do it. I couldn't direct this and still have my credibility as a documentarian. There's no way. Hmm. So I turned down a lot of jobs for better or worse financially, you know? Um, I guess, you know, there's that typecasting the media can give you. 
You know, it's like, oh, he makes these kind of films. Yeah. And I, I completely understand, you know, I'm like, now that I've graduated from, from university, it's like, oh my God, like, I don't want, like, and I'm working on my first feature, or writing at least, but it's like, all right, I need to make sure that I need to follow this feature with something different, because I don't want it to be known exactly. as, as, as a one note filmmaker. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that's what, uh, like, I don't, I don't know about you, I'm not sure your opinion on this. But I, I get a little annoyed when I hear you know genre directors. You know, it's like oh he's a yeah. he's a horror f- filmmaker. He's a he's a, it's like for me that doesn't. Mean, I mean, some of the best horror films were not even made by so-called horror filmmakers. You know it's what I'm saying? True. It's and, very true. Kubrick, for example. Exactly. The Shining. Yeah, no one would call him a horror filmmaker. I mean, he wasn't in that genre at all. But I'm, I'm I don't know. Something in me is very happy to hear that you feel that way as well. It's like you, you in well, the, well, in the sense that in the sense that not to be labeled something you don't want to be labeled as creatively. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, as an example, I didn't go out after Yank Tanks. I wanted to make another film that I had a screenplay that I had written and, and we were shopping that around LA and, and getting, you know, it, getting it into people's hands. Like we got it into Penelope Cruz's hands. Um, and it's a story about, you know, New Mexico, Mexican Americans in New Mexico during the fifties. Um, and then, and then Comedy Club came along and just dropped into my lap. So I just put everything else aside and said, got to go with this, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I really, I mean, I knew, I knew what it was going to take to make this documentary. I didn't know it was going to take so long, over 10 years. But a lot of that was waiting to see what was going to happen with Tom and the club. Um, but I knew it was going to take a lot longer than Yank Tanks. I had a feeling that for that. And, and it was almost like, you know, that... that that hesitation there, I just was like, oh, do I really want to invest this much time in something right now? And it didn't. And then you know, I fought it for the longest time, but but the story and, and, and hanging out at the club with these comics who were helping to build the club just became like this daily thing where I would get out of bed and grab my camera and rush down to the club because I knew something funny and cool was going to happen that day. I mean, there's so 200 hours of footage. And all you're getting to see in this documentary is 90 minutes. I mean, there's some stuff that is just dropped down hilariously funny that we can't, we couldn't show. You know, there's the entire storylines and characters. Right. It had to be cut out of the rough cut because it was too long. Mm. So Now, you've mentioned that originally you had a 30-minute short film. What helped you was getting archives. And that was an interesting story. Yeah. If you want to get into that. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, as you know... Like Bob Saget says in the film, the worst thing you can do is talk about comedy. You either show it or, you know, that's it. You can't just interview talking heads. And I, there's a lot of documentaries out there about stand-up comedy where, and they're so boring. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, I won't name any titles, but there was actually one done here locally, which is just, I mean, not funny. And it had some of the biggest stars in it. And uh, because you can't just have people sitting there and talking about comedy. It is freaking boring. The audience doesn't want to see that. So I remembered what Saget said when we were editing, and I'm like, oh, we ended up with like a half an hour film. And, you know, back in the 80s, there weren't a lot of cameras around. I mean, people who are of a different generation probably don't even know this, but we didn't have phones with cameras on them back in the 80s. No kidding. <laughs> oh, my God. I did not know that. Yeah, it was really, it was really <laughs> tough to, to live back then. I don't know how humans survived. Right. But... Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so there weren't a lot of cameras. I mean, I think that they had VHS cameras on the market back then, and they were gigantic. I mean, they were 
you know, the size of a, of a shipping box or something. And, and the quality was pretty dubious. But um, so we weren't finding the footage we needed to find at Cobbs to tell the story. And uh, I was very, very frustrated. I was getting, you know, I was starting to think, oh, this is going to have to be a short film because we just can't put the audience through a, an hour or more of this just talking about comedy. And then um, I was having lunch with the wife of Will Durst, Debbie Durst. And Will is a very well-respected comic around here in the Bay Area. And uh, a very good friend of Tom Sawyer. And I was meeting with his, uh, his wife, Debbie, who was in a, a troupe called Femprov back in the 80s. It was the first all-female improv group ever in, in the United States. All five, five really hilarious uh, female comedians, stand-up comedians. I don't know how one of them didn't end up on Saturday Night Live because they easily could have. Uh, and she's and I was just lamenting with Debbie and I was saying, God, I just cannot find her archival footage. I mean, is there anybody you haven't told me about yet? And she said, Oh, well, you know, what about Janine Hansen? Have you have you talked to her? I mean, she I believe she I remember her having a camera. I don't know if she ever shot at Cobbs, but you know, maybe you know because. <laughs> they don't, a lot of these comics don't remember the 80s very well. I don't know why. I'm not going to get into that. But uh, I think there was a lot of partying going on. Right. And uh, so, you know, I actually went over. I had lunch with Janine. I remember I asked her, what can I wish you? I wanted a burrito. So I brought her a burrito over. I'm standing there with these two burritos in a paper sack, and she lets me into her house. I remember it very clearly to this day. And, and before, like, we even sat down to eat, she, she said, oh, you're looking for archival footage, someone told me, of the 80s like comedy scene here. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's really hard to find it. So she walks me up to this, this, this closet, and she opens the door. And from floor to ceiling, it's VHS tapes stacked upon each other, number, numbered and categorized of things that she had shot in the 80s around San Francisco comedy scene. I nearly dropped the burritos and just started jumping up for, I almost did, I just wanted to jump up for joy. I mean, yeah, a lot of that footage came from there. And then Mark Pitta, Mark Pitta provided me some clips because he was working for the news station back then, so he had a camera. And he was the one that shot that whole thing with Bobcat Goldthwait. I don't know if you remember that. We do like a really nice section of Bobcat there in mm -hmm. the middle of the film, like it's five to ten minutes long. One of the funniest comic sets I've ever seen in my life to this day. And I've seen a lot of stand-up comedy. This this hour, he just destroyed the audience for an hour. I mean, that's the one you know where he does the the way the um, the heckler says boring. Yeah, I don't even remember that. Joke. I, I remember. Yeah, and he says, "Let me tell you a story about boring." Yeah, you know, and that was like, oh man, when we saw that archival footage, it was like, okay, now we're in. And that happened at the first cops, you know. So. And she had all the this footage stored in her house. Yeah, she she will she will very uh, openly admit to you that she has very bad OCD. Oh, <laughs> no, but it works so in your, would, it works in your favor. Though, oh, at the end God, of the day. that's <laughs> what archivists are. I mean, yeah. they, if if you want a good archive, archivists make sure they have OCD. I mean, she shot and dot every time a comic from San Francisco would, for example, go on Letterman or go on uh, the Leno show, she would tape it off the TV. Hmm. So she had all of those things from every single comic from this scene when they would rise through the ranks and get on TV or do shows. She has it all. All of it. And it's just amazing. It's, and it's all like 
archived. Like if you want to, if you want to find find Bobcat Goldthwait, you just ask her for Bobcat Goldthwait, and she'll go through and give you three tapes with him on it. I mean, it was really, really a big find, and and it was after walking out of there, I was like walking on cloud nine. I mean, I realized because of her, I now had a feature film. Mm. So, well, because of her and Tom's, uh, Mark Pitta. Mark Pitta had the other big archive too. So, uh, very lucky finds. And, you know, organically, I knew that had to come through the comedy scene because, I mean, I don't think that there's going to be some dude out in Pacifica who shot all this comedy stuff and didn't have some kind of connection to the comedy scene. So I knew that I had to find it through the comics. And again, that was another big gamble, but we did luck out and find it. Yeah. What did you feel as, as a filmmaker? Uh, you took more out of this documentary that you create that you made do, do you feel like you, you, you there's something you, you didn't learn before and now you, you do oh yeah yeah I mean I don't think I would be very interested in doing something that I I didn't feel I was going to learn about um because I'm I'm definitely addicted to learning and exploring and I'm very I'm a very curious person um And I, and I try to feel that curiosity at every chance that I can. And I think that, you know, I, I honestly didn't know much about stand-up comedy except for it made me laugh. I mean, that was really very simple. I didn't know how these guys became headliners. I didn't know the struggle that was involved in owning a club. I didn't know any of that stuff when I walked into the into Cobbs with my camera the first day. And I, yeah, I learned an immense amount. I have an incredible amount of respect for people that do this job called stand-up comic much more than I did when I started and I think it's it's just because of my experience and my exposure to it you know um, so yeah I mean I learned the process and I mean as I learned it I recorded it and I think that you know a viewer who watches the comedy club now is gonna is gonna be almost like inside me walking through this situation that happened, you know? Because um, I think you have to, in life as a filmmaker, you have to bring something of yourself into all of your projects. I think the more external your work becomes, the less interesting it becomes. So, me being in theater and me being in the arts, I took it upon myself to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the camera. I need to record this experience that I'm having um, being at this club with these comics, with this owner. And so it was very observational kind of filming, not in the Frederick Wiseman kind of documentary style where he doesn't interact at all with the, with the subjects, but, you know, just spending so much time there and just feeling all that stuff and yeah I think it changed me for sure it didn't just teach me things it it changed me it changed me somehow and I maybe maybe I mean I'm still trying to figure out how it changed me you know the film has only been out it's only had two public screenings we're hoping to show it in New York this fall um, but the, you know as I get distance from it because I was immersed in this thing for almost over a decade I mean, inside of it. Um, and almost sometimes I felt like my life was <laughs> parallel to Tom's, you know, like 
oh, I ran out of money. How am I going to finish the film? And, you know, right. At the same time, Tom's running out of money and he can't, you know, and, and then, oh, an investor comes in and saves the day. And, you know, and, um, it was almost like I was leading a parallel life with this guy in a way. And it started to feel like that, dangerously so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm still kind of taking a step back and, and, um, still digesting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I am because it was a big one. It was a big project and a, and a really, really kind of long, long study mm-hmm. of this art form. So um, one thing I did learn, I did learn for sure that I could tell you is that I am not a stand-up comedian. Interesting. <laughs> and I don't think I don't think I ever could be. I, I think I have a good sense of humor. Right. But that's just like that's like yeah. on, at the moment, you know, like make a yeah. joke out of something at the moment. But I could never get up there on that stage and do the same thing the same way yeah. every night, regardless of what the audience was saying back to me. There's a difference between being funny, which a lot of people can be, yeah. and being a performer. Yeah. And that's where the discipline comes in, and that's where the the, the, the passion comes in, I guess you can say, to, to, to keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, can you go a bit into, uh, I'm curious to know now, because you have su- such extensive uh, experience in, in, in filmmaking, um, and other stuff, writing as well. Uh, can you go a bit into the, your creative process? Hmm. The process, I think it's probably a very personal one. It's different every project. Um, generally, it will start with me hearing something or experiencing something or reading something that's like, hmm, that kind of, that's kind of cool and interesting. And, and, uh, and then my imagination will start taking over a little bit and, and I'll start thinking maybe, well, we could do this with that, or maybe there's a story in there. What are the characters like? Who are the people that are involved with this? And I'll just start writing very general notes to myself. Um, I use the stickies on my laptop a lot. The sticky on my Apple laptop. There's a little sticky yeah. app thing. I use them too. Yeah. I'm using them right now, actually. There you go. <laughs> and I'll write notes to myself. And sometimes, you know, ideas just go, they, they last for maybe a week or two. And I'll write a few pages and then just lose the energy, lose the interest somehow. Mm-hmm. And they'll go away. Maybe they'll come back later in a different form. Um... I like to think that the best ideas are the ones that stick with you. So I never, I mean, I think as a more mature artist, I think I probably, um, or more experienced artist maybe I should say, I think I probably am less likely to just dive into something off like the initial, you know, turn on. I'm a little bit more careful and probably like, I like to vet things out a little bit more inside myself. so then maybe a month later, I mean, you know, maybe it's still there and I'm still working on it. And, and uh, um, there's screenplays that I have written in three months. There's screenplays that I'm still writing 10 years later. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really different. It's really, I think it's all based on discovery, though. Like I was telling you earlier, I like to explore new topics that I don't know very much about. So that it's a, there's a learning curve there, you know? inside the actual process of making something. Um, and then, you know, you get, you know, you just have to, I mean, part of that discipline has to be, uh, process, part of that 
creative process needs to be very disciplined too. Um, when you get into it, when you dedicate yourself to something, you have to see it through to the end. Once you make that decision, and you have to put it in your head, especially as a filmmaker, because you have to have the, the patience of an ice fisherman to do this job called filmmaking. You really do, because there's a long space in between screenings and long space in between the process and what the product is. So you have to really work on it for a long time. So you have to be dedicated to it. You have to be disciplined to it. And you have to have a schedule. You have to put yourself on a schedule. Like, I'm going to work on it for X hours per day, regardless of it's just doing a web search or random research, or is it writing a screenplay for two hours a day, or is it making phone calls? Like, I made a lot of phone calls for the comedy club. I was on the phone a lot for that. I calling managers and agents and trying to get interviews and, and speaking with comics themselves on the phone, you know, I mean, you just, there's got to be, there's got to be discipline involved in it. And I mean, I know guys my age, no, I'm not going to name names, but I mean, you know, they call themselves filmmakers and they've never made a film. I mean, maybe they made one short film 10 years ago and they, they don't have the discipline to do it. I'm not the one to tell them that, you know? I'm not the one to tell them that they maybe aren't working hard enough or aren't writing hard enough or maybe they're rehashing the same idea over and over and over again trying to make a, a script that's been rejected better. Um, and that's not me either. I mean, I, I will finish the script and then move on right away, you know? Keep it rolling forward. I think that's another part of my process is that... Um, you know, in some ways you have to be like a shark. You if you stop swimming, you die, you know? As an artist, you gotta keep moving forward, always. Um, you have to have, you can't just put everything, I, I don't wanna sound cliche, but you don't put all your eggs in one basket, you know? I mean, you have to have all these different projects going on at once, I think, to, to survive in this, in this art form. So you can't be like, oh, I'm just gonna do a Kickstarter for this one film, and if that doesn't work, I'll try to, you know, you have to keep developing many different projects over and over all the time. That's what I would say. Interesting. Yeah, keep, keep juggling different things. And, and, um, and then eventually one is going to take off, you know, and you're going to have to concentrate on just that one for a while. But uh, in the development phase, you definitely have to be doing many, many different things. Did that describe? <laughs> I don't know. If that's, the other parts of it are, are very personal. I probably wouldn't get into anyway. But you know, I mean, excuse me. Yeah. yeah. No, it's uh, it's well put. I, I think it, those are definitely lessons um, a lot of people can take from. Um, yeah. And I think more than just filmmaking as well. I think in, in a wide variety of, of things. You know, whether it's maybe it's just simply writing, or maybe it's just simply acting. Yeah. Or maybe it's. Um, uh, yeah, that's and yeah. you have. To, I mean, also, you have to set a very high bar for yourself. You know, you have to. The mindset has to be: it could be better. I could make it better. And you have to say, I mean, even on the night of the premiere of the comedy club, I'm telling you, I was telling myself, I could make it better. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. really was saying that to myself. Yeah. I've been there watching your thing on the, on the big screen. You're like, I should have cut it shorter. Yeah. I should have. Ah. Uh, Anyway, uh, we're close to the one hour mark. All right. We're, we're, we're closing up pretty soon. I just saw uh, a few questions left. Uh, one is, uh, I find it f it's great to, to hear you talk, you know. Thank you. Starting from a 12-year-old with a Super 8 camera. 
you know? Yeah. And now you got you. It was a lot easier to do that then, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, hypothetically, let's say you, you meet yourself at 12-year-old. What's something you, you, you would suggest to him or, or what, a bit of advice? What would I say to myself as a 12-year-old? Hmm, that's a very good question. Uh, I would say don't spend so much of your time trying to be a rock star because that path is going to lead nowhere for you. Just stick with the filmmaking. Get a degree and start making more films. If I would have said that to myself when I was 12, I probably would have made my first feature when I was 20 rather than finishing it when I was 28. Because I, you know, I, I really I played in rock bands for a while. And I, You're a musician. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Well, yeah, what did you play? Another, like, that was like totally a sidebar to my life. I mean, I played guitar and keyboard. I wrote a lot of songs. I mean... I had a writing partner, Eldon Hagen. We, we played in bands together through our teenage years. And you guys recorded any, any albums? Oh, yeah. We had a couple songs that were played on college radio. and That's so cool. And then yeah. it was just like, then we went on a couple tours. And man, th- this is another reason why I know I could never be a stand-up comic. is just doing those gigs in bars every night. And you're just stinky, dirty, smells like beer. And yeah. you're wearing the same clothes you wore the night before. And, and you're just driving from town to town. Couldn't deal with that lifestyle. Couldn't deal with it. Were you the singer as well? Yeah, Eldon yeah. and I both sing. That's, that's hard, man. Like, I'm learning guitar and I'm singing. Yeah. I'm writing songs as well. And it's, yeah. I, it's, it's hard, you know? But I mean, I put down, I put down um, filmmaking for, you know, a while there to, to pursue that. Because I really thought, like, my brother-in-law was kind of a rock star in Minneapolis. He was in a band called The Suburbs. And I kind of emulated him for a while I, I was inside that that lifestyle it seemed so exciting and what kind of genre was it it was punk kind was of punk. punk pop um and going to punk clubs and rock clubs when since I was 15 years old they used to sneak me in with the band um just got under my skin man I really wanted to be on stage I wanted to be that guy and and I mean I probably had if I would stuck with it and I would have been able to stomach that that road life you know I probably would have ended up being a pretty successful songwriter, I think. I'm a creative guy. I know how to play. and I know how to write a good structured song. Um, but I came, I came to a really a crossroads, you know? Like, everyone comes to these crossroads in life, and they are life-changing places. You stand there, and you go, I could go this direction. Or I could go this direction. I can't go both. And I guess I decided, you know, I can't. And along that time, I was working professionally in the film industry, and playing in bands. That was out in Boston and New York. And I decided that, and I was also making the can at the same time. So I just kind of decided I'd, I'd rather be, I'd, I'd rather not be a jack of all trades and a master of none, so to speak. I wanted to be a master of something. And I think to be a master, you know, you have to have the 10,000 hours, I guess is what they say, if you do something. Ten, for 10,000 hours, then eventually you master it. I don't know who came up with that number. But, uh, so I ended up, you know, saying to myself, well, I can't deal with this, being a, a road-tripping musician. I can't do it. And filmmaking, I'm making this film, The Can, and I'm really loving it, and it's going well, and the shots are good. And 
so I just quit the band. I quit, and I just... And my band members kind of were the ones that they, they had a... They actually gave me what I would call an intervention. <laughs> <laughs> so they saw it coming. Yeah, they okay. sat down with me one night, and I knew I knew the shit was hitting the fan. And they said, you know, David, we haven't rehearsed for two weeks because you're shooting your film. We are musicians. We want to make money doing this. And we feel like, you know, you're... you're Passions are too divided, and we just don't want to be in the band anymore unless you are going to dedicate yourself to being a musician. And uh, I couldn't do it. So the band dissolved, and, and I just didn't even look back, man. I felt like I made the right decision, and I still I still feel like I did. Yeah, because you're not looking back. I think that's the indicates. That's a good indication. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I nostalgically think about those days playing music, and you know, it was really fun. And it was fun writing music and playing and having people react to it. But, uh, you know, I also have a very strong social justice side of myself, you know. And I thought I could do more with my skills and my creativity and my talents in making the world a better place. And I felt I could do more through film and media than I could through music. And that was also a feeling I had, and that's another feeling that I, I, I kind of still decided. It was funny because, you know, I got, I got a huge, I'm just, I hope you have time, but no, when, sure. when we were at the LA Latino Film Festival where we won Best Documentary um, by the jury um, down in LA, that was 2003, I think. Uh, I was on stage with Edward James Olmos at a screening. And my brother, who is a, a genius plastic surgeon, facial surgeon who helps children with birth defects, and I mean, a really humanitarian, absolutely love the guy. And Edward James almost is like, I met both the Schendel brothers, you know, and, and they, who made this wonderful film, Yank Tanks. And I just wanted to say that although Dr. Schendel could do surgeries on maybe, you know, a maximum of thousands of people in his life and help them, what this film does is help, can help millions of people understand Cuba. And I realized that, you know, yeah, that's it. That's the power of this thing. This power of film, and documentary and narrative film, and even experimental film, is that you can change a person's life. Or you can definitely plant a seed to change their mind. And not that I am the most morally just person in the world and that my ideas should be, you know, the law of the land. But I do feel like there's certain things that, that I got right, you know, yeah. that I know yeah. is right. And Yank Tank shows that. And certainly the comedy club shows that comedy, stand-up comedy in particular, is the front line of freedom of expression, freedom of speech. And people's minds have definitely been changed after walking out of a comedy club, after hearing someone like W. Kamal Bell, great comic. Yeah, he's on CNN now. Yeah, who talks, and he's in the comic book too. And he talks about, you know, racial justice, man. And and he does it in a way where it doesn't hurt. You know, you laugh at it, but you laugh at it for a reason. And and, and, and that that is endangered right now, I think, because so many of the clubs are these big corporate franchises. And I think there within that is there's a danger of censorship. Not that it's happening. But there's a potential for it. Right. Because I've heard comics tell me 
that, you know, at certain clubs, and I won't name them because I don't want to get sued, but, I mean, big corporate franchise clubs where, you know, the manager will come up and go, hey, don't do that joke about um, black people tonight, okay? You did it You did it in San Francisco, that's fine. Just don't do it in Kansas City, okay? Is that censorship? The, I mean, the comic kind of still has a, a choice to do it or not. It's not like he's going to get put in jail if he does it. But there's like this idea, underlying idea, like, if you offend someone at this club, you're not going to be playing the next club. Right. And when all the comedy clubs were independent and not franchised, that didn't happen. It didn't matter. Right. It was more on the merit of the joke, if it's good or bad. Yeah. It's not the concept. Exactly. You know, I, I, and I think it's a bit censorship when you're saying you can't do these concepts. Yeah. As opposed to, okay, this concept is touchy, maybe find a way to work it out better. But, but it's such a what they're saying is don't do it flat out. So I, I could yeah. definitely understand that. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, there's danger there. I mean, you know, when it, gets, when it gets controlled by too few hands, then there's this idea that they're all powerful and they can tell you what to say. Too few hands that are only interested in money. Yeah, putting butts in the seats. Yeah. And that's the other sad thing is that they don't care about nurturing comics. No. The only people they want to put on tour are the ones that are going to fill the, fill the club up, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Where, do, where do the young comics go now if there's no Tom Sawyers left? Well, we, we're at the bars. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this is, the, this is the call to action, man. Everybody should see the comedy club. Right. They should see Yank Tanks, but, you know, on Vimeo. And uh, definitely see the comedy club, which is not available yet, but we are... By the end of the year, by the end of 2016, we will have a distributor. We'll have it. Hopefully, it'll be on cable TV for everybody to see. But, yeah, definitely. I mean, where are the young Tom Sawyers? Man, stand up. Go out and book clubs and get some good comic talent in there. And the key is, you know, it's like being a baseball manager. Find like five comics that are good and that you believe in, that maybe have five, ten minutes, and just nurture them, man. Next thing you know, you're going to be Tom Sawyer, you know, <laughs> have your own club in San Francisco, because that's kind of the way you did it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to, to, have, to talk to you, David. Yeah, very cool. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely, man. It was really fun. And let's go out and get some more raspberries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're really good. Yeah.